Good evening. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're always thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know about our exhibitions, we have families have been flocking to New York Historical to see the art and whimsy of Mo Willems. It's an exhibition on view now of the children's book author and illustrator's work, along with, and we also have a number of other wonderful exhibitions. So if you haven't seen this yet or the others, come back. And if you don't know anything about it, if you're new here, we have a beautiful brochure that will tell you all about the exhibitions and the upcoming programs as well. And if you are not yet a member, we invite you to become members. Your membership supports all these wonderful programs and other programs as well. And we always thank you all for being with us. Just quickly, I'll put my glasses on and ask you how many people are members with us tonight. And we have lots of members, you know, always. It, actually, it looks like everyone's a member, but you know, we always say you can upgrade. So, so tonight's program, um, it's a very special program. It's from John Jay to the Roberts Court, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Um, for 11 years, or maybe 12, he has been supporting these amazing programs, so we really thank him. I'd also like to recognize and thank wonderful trustees in the audience tonight. We have four, I believe. I don't know, I haven't seen all of them, but I know they're here in spirit if they haven't shown up yet. Judy Berkowitz, Susan Danilo, Glenn Louie, and Carl Mangus, and all the chairman's council members with us tonight, we thank you all as well for all your unbelievable support too. Let's give them a hand. So the program tonight will last an hour, include a question and answer session, and there will be a formal book signing with the author, and the, the constitutional scholar tonight. And uh, what will be, you know, if we're asking the question, um, why is this night different? Um, <laughs> tonight, we're, we're, our museum store is closed tonight, and we have a museum store kiosk. And it will be right on the west, Central, west, uh, Central Park West side where our uh, speaker tonight will be signing books. So no running back and forth tonight. Um, we are thrilled to welcome Akil Riedemar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, back to New York Historical Society. Before joining Yale Law School, Professor Amar clerked on the First Circuit for Judge, for Judge Stephen, then Judge Stephen Breyer. He is also a recipient of the Devane Medal, Yale's highest award for teaching excellence and is the author of several books, including The Law of the Land, A Grand Tour of Our Constitutional Republic. And I think Akhil was voted the most popular professor at Yale. At least he's 
my most popular professor, and you're all here, I think, if you all are here because you know him, he's your most popular professor. So before we begin and invite our popular professor up on the stage, please turn off any cell phones, electronic devices, and join me in welcoming Akil Ridamar. Thank you. Well, good evening, welcome. Thank you so much for, for coming. Uh, this is the New York Historical Society. We're gonna be talking about the Supreme Court uh, and we'll be talking about the history of the Supreme Court because this is the New York Historical Society, but we're also gonna be talking about the New York angle on all of this because this is the New York Historical <laughs> Society. And yes, why is this night different from all others. Well, here's uh, one thought. It's only really this week that it has become, um, I think, pretty apparent that the upcoming presidential election will be a subway series between <laughs> two, not just two New Yorkers, but basically two people headquartered in Manhattan, um, Shades of Burr and Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and and uh, why am I mentioning uh, a new a, a, a presidential election, given Professor, that this is a conversation about the Supreme Court? Well, uh, therein lies my first of five points, um, and it's going to be about the the interesting relationship between presidents and justices, uh, and. Uh, not only, uh, just, and I'll, I'll work my way up to the present moment, but not only is this going to be an election between two New Yorkers for the presidency, but the Supreme Court really is on the ballot, and New York plays a big role in that because the person who is right now the nominee for the vacant spot um, is a man who learned his law, learned how to be a judge, basically, right here in New York City. He's a uh, clerk of Henry Friendly's, I'm going to say more about that. The Chief Justice, because we're going to be talking about the Roberts Court that's going to be going in one direction if Mr. Trump wins and in a different direction if Secretary Clinton wins. That The, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, not only was born in New York, but, but he too learned how to be a judge in this city. He too was a clerk of the great Henry Friendly, Chief Judge of the Second Circuit here in this city. The, the person who, um, whose untimely demise created this vacancy is a New Yorker, Antonin Scalia, as are several of the other justices. So um, Justice Sotomayor, Justice uh, uh, Kagan, um, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg. Um, um, Justice Alito isn't from that far away. New, Newark, you know, I know it's, it's on the other side of the bridge. Um, so. It's very much a New York story that we're going to be exploring together this evening, but I want to begin with the relationship between presidents and justices and, and offer you um, uh, uh, an account of, of the, 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 the structure of that relationship. And in particular, here are two big points, that there's a tidal pattern to the American presidency ebbing and flowing of, of a tide. Um, and this tidal pattern creates certain 
very interesting and special face-offs at certain particular moments in American history between presidents and uh, justices. So um, here's the structure of the situation of the Constitution. Our justices are chosen politically. Justices don't pick their successors quite. It's not a self-perpetuating meritocracy the way the Yale Law School faculty picks its successors, <laughs> who pick its successors, the, the way um, the cardinals pick the pope, and then the pope names cardinals, and then the cardinals pick the pope. And in this um, self-perpetuating way, no, our Constitution provides for a political choice to be made whenever there uh, is to be a replenishment of the judiciary, uh, both the Supreme Court and the lower federal court. So the process of selection is by design political. The Constitution is on the ballot this year, in effect, when you vote for the presidency and the Senate. That is not a bug. That is a feature of our system. So it's political selection. And then judicial independence kicks in. And there's life tenure, tenure for good behavior. Um, and that creates an interesting dynamic. The, the justices in the modern era stay on much longer than do presidents. And indeed, presidents now are term limited in a way that they weren't. At the founding, actually, um, some of the justices rotated off very quickly. I'm going to tell you a little bit about John Jay and how he, he couldn't wait to just get off the court. And, and the tenure of the justices early on was very short, and you had presidents who in theory, could have been perpetually re-elected as governors of New York, for example, who were allowed to be re-elected, you know, stayed on forever. George Clinton, the governor of this state at the time the Constitution was adopted, I think um, it was a three-year term, and he won seven of them. And he left only to become vice president, which he thought was, quote, a respectable retirement. Um, and, and he died in office. So, so the presidency could last for a long time, and the, and the judges rotated off in reasons, for reasons that um, we'll get into. Um, but over the course of history, chief justices have tended to stay a good long time. Pre presidents have come and gone. We have basically 44 presidents in, in American history. You, you could say 43 because we're counting Grover Cleveland twice, but okay. And 17 chief justices, so way fewer chief justices than presidents. Now here's the title pattern and the face-off. The way America's presidency has tended to operate, uh, if um, a coalition emerges that manages to capture the presidency once. Very often, it's uh, come up with a formula that enables th that party, th that um, vision, to capture the presidency again and again and again until some almost exogenous shock, some, some big change occurs, and the tide shifts. So there are only a few tide turning presidents in American history. And by tide turning, here's what I mean. Someone who, um, when they're rising to power, really the other, a different point of view prevails. But they manage against the tide to win, to win again, win re-election, 
hand off in a power to their uh, hand-picked wingman, their, their um, uh, uh, apostolic uh, successor. And in the next period, even though when they were rising to power, really it was the, the other faction, the, another vision of America that was ascendant, for the next period, it's really their vision that generally wins far more than it loses until something else happens and the tide turns again. Now, if that's my definition of tide-turning presence, here they are. Um, they're, in effect, what a political scientist would say are the Rushmore presidents. Uh, and this is, um, uh, um, uh, I'm giving you, I wish it were my own theory, it's not quite. Um, Steve Skoranek, my great colleague, political science colleague at Yale, has developed this idea. I, I'm, I have a few small variations, but this is his model. So there's George Washington, who, of course, um, when he's growing up, has a very different regime in place, uh, uh, George III, but Washington manages, obviously, to prevail, and he wins re-election, and he hands off power, in effect, to, to his political ally, John Adams. Now, that dynasty, the, the Washington Federalist dynasty, doesn't last very long because John Adams signs um, uh, his name to extremely repressive laws, the Alien and Sedition Acts, that generate a massive backlash. Um, and Thomas Jefferson is now the next tide-turning president. Very early on, he is running against the Federalist regime. He's got a very different sort of platform and, um, and political formula for success. Um, he's getting, getting his votes from, from other folks. And he manages to win against Adams, to, to win re-election, and in effect to hand off power to his wingman, his secretary of state. Secretaries of state can be wingmen or wingwomen. Um, just remember that. Um, uh, and Ma Madison is going to win and win re-election. And then his secretary of state, Monroe, is going to win and win re-election. And, and, and that party will become Jefferson's party, basically the Jacksonian party, that is the dominant political party in antebellum America. They don't win every time, but they win way, way, way more than they lose, because people remember that Sedition Act and the Alien and Sedition Act, and you basically never hear from the Federalists again, at least on the presidential stage. So we have Washington, now we have Jefferson, and what happens to that party? They basically commit a kind of political suicide. When the next president, uh, when, when this unknown fellow named Abraham Lincoln rises to power and manages to win, and instead of just saying, basically the political wind is still at our backs, so the tide is still with us, we, we can outlast this guy, um, we're just gonna wait him out. Um, we're just going to say no to everything he proposes, and he will be a failed you know, reformist president, this tall, skinny constitutional lawyer from Illinois. Um, this, this strategy of just say no, they're not smart enough to do that. They don't pull a Mitch McConnell. Instead, they walk away from a game that they're basically winning. This was not a smart strategy on the, their part. And, and Lincoln, and this unilateral secession, which is unconstitutional, will mean that Lincoln achieves a certain greatness in resisting this, and he wins, and he wins re-election, and it was, no, you know, it was a very close thing. And in effect, hands off power ultimately to his wingman, who was Ulysses S. Grant. We sort of skip over uh, Johnson, uh, Andrew Johnson. And that party is now the dominant political party for a good long time, because the Democrats have committed suicide in a politically with slavery, secession, segregation, and, and, and not really trying to basically accept the verdict of the Civil War and its amendments. 
they prevail all the way until another cataclysmic event, the Great Depression, um, and their party gets the blame for it, Herbert Hoover, and so your next tide-turning president is Franklin Roosevelt. So in this whole period, no Democrat wins a majority. Uh, Woodrow Wilson doesn't win a majority, Grover Cleveland doesn't win a majority, so, and Republicans are winning landslides, many of them in, in this era, but, Franklin, but the Great Depression, and now we have Franklin Roosevelt as the next tide-turning president who wins and wins again and wins again and wins again, hands off power to his wingman, Harry Truman, and then the tie, and that's really the, the dominant coalition until Vietnam um, and uh, um, uh, just the chaos of uh, the 1960s sort of tears apart that coalition, uh, which has become the Great Society 19, um, in the 19, late 1960s, and and really Ronald Reagan um, uh, uh, eventually is the the next really genuinely tide-turning president who won. One re-election, won a third term called H.W., you know, his handing off power, because now he can't run for a third term. He's, he's term limited. And until now, we've been living basically in the era of Reagan. So those are the tide-turning presidents, Washington and um, Jefferson and Lincoln and FDR and, 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 and Reagan. And if, this is the choice that's before us, my fellow citizens, in 2016, Barack Obama's secretary of, former Secretary of State, his wingwoman, Hillary Clinton, were to win, we would say about Obama, or historians of the future might say, the tide has now once again turned. President won, won re-election, handoff power. And if the Democrats, we only know this in the next two or three elections, if they become basically the dominant presidential party, at least, then you would now. Okay, so that's the structure, the rhythm of the presidency. Um, and if you're a Democrat, I'm going to bum you out just, just so you understand how powerful, um, actually, we still, Lincoln's um, uh, 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 gravitational pull is, because remember, the Democrats are overwhelmingly the dominant political party until Lincoln. And the Civil War looms so large in our memory that since Lincoln, there are only two Democrats who have won two popular votes for the presidency. Franklin Roosevelt, Barack Obama, that's it. Wow, yeah, ooh. You know, not Jack Kennedy, not Harry Truman, not Bill Clinton, none of them. Okay? And so, so oh, now I'm thinking, oh, this Obama, he's not, he's not as bad as we thought. That's actually re re pretty impressive. Give, but the Democrats have won popular votes, um, not, not always majorities, but at least pluralities in five of the last six presidential elections. And if, if they prevail again and going forward, the Republicans don't sort of um, rethink their formulas, um, then uh, they're going to be in the minority for a while. Okay. That's the presidency. Now, how does that interact with the court whose justices have, are picked politically but have life tenure, don't have to leave if they don't want to? Well, there are these special moments when the new rising president confronts the ghosts of of administrations past in the form of these holdover justices that have been appointed by the other party, the party that you ran against, you know, change. Because uh, presidents are change agents. They, they always are promising sort of a new thing. They, most of them fail. Most presidents actually fail. It's an impossible job. But the few who succeed, the Jeffersons, the Lincolns, the FDRs, the Obamas, are going to confront 
a judiciary that largely is in the hands of the, the, the regime they ran against. That's the drama of these great moments. This is what I talk, when I, I say the title pattern and face-offs. That's Thomas Jefferson facing John Marshall, who's a Federalist, who's basically in the Washington John Adams camp, and, and now actually there, there's this confrontation, and we actually call that Marbury versus Madison. In Marbury versus Madison, the real drama isn't Marshall invalidating um, an Oh, I'm sorry, well, let me, before, before, I should have started with Washington, of course. My, my apologies. There's not so much of a confrontation here because Washington picks John Jay, okay? He's Washington's guy. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't inherit all these British judges. They've been tossed out in the American Revolution. But just so you know, in 11 of the 13 colonies, the chief judge of the colony sided with George III against George Washington in the American Revolution. Article three, which is the judicial article, is third out of three for a reason, or for several reasons. It's the least and last, there's the least text associated with it. It's third out of three. Politicians are supposed to pick judges. Judges are not supposed to pick presidents. That's why Bush versus Gore is a disgrace. You see, there's a, there's an, and, but the reason that judges were third out of three is they are not the, the, the leaders of the American Revolution. They are, they are not, they're not the champions. Um, so, um, so there's not this face-off initially with, with Washington, because he's picking John Jay. Um, but with Jefferson against John Marshall, there is this confrontation. And it's, it's heightened because they're actually second cousins, and they don't really even like each other. And note that the new, that John Marshall has to swear in um, Jefferson, just as Roger Tawney is going to be swearing in um, Abraham Lincoln. And you remember the slightly flubbed swearing in of um, when um, uh, um, uh, Obama was sworn in by John Roberts. These are slightly tense moments, but I'm getting ahead of the story a bit. So just Marbury versus Madison is conventionally thought as John Marshall invalidating an act of Congress. But the real drama is whether um, is John Marshall against Thomas Jefferson. Because Marsh, uh, Marshall's opinion is, goes on and on about how lawless the Jefferson administration has been. Uh, in the same way that the, today's court is being invited to say, oh, well, the Obama administration is lawless on immigration policy, and the Obama administration was lawless on Obamacare, and, and um, not just in the law, but the implementation of the law. And the uh, Obama administration is um, lawless on um, uh, some of their carbon uh, rules and, and the EPA. So, so this is nothing new. It's, it's a feature of the distinct structural pattern of a presidency that's a four-year term with this title um, uh, feature and justices who have life tenure. So Marbury is a drama. Now flash forward, Roger Tawney and Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln becomes president by running against Roger Tawney, by telling everyone who will listen just how preposterous Dred Scott is. This, link, this young lawyer from Illinois calls it, quote, I love this phrase, an astonisher in legal history. Um, and now, how the, the tension when Lincoln confronts um, Tawney, who wants to invalidate everything Lincoln is doing and declare everything the Obama administration, I mean the Lincoln administration, um, <laughs> is doing unconstitutional. He wants to declare Lincoln, they have a draft, an individual mandate, if you will. 
um, uh, that's what it is. It's a it's a conscription law, um, and it's a you know, and, and the Lincoln, Lincoln theory is actually it's a tax because you can buy your way out of it, just like the individual mandate. Tawny, he's afraid that Tawny's going to invalidate this whole thing, and when Tawny dies, they find in his desk the case never materializes, and they find in his desk a completely um, a complete draft opinion, a draft draft, if you will, holding conscription unconstitutional. The case hasn't even reached the Supreme Court, but, but Tawny's ready. He's, he's got it in his top drawer. Um, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, if you read it, it has all the poetry of a bill of lading. It's just very, it doesn't soar like the Gettysburg Address. Why? And it doesn't free everyone, but only some people in some jurisdictions. Because he's a lawyer. He's trying to bulletproof it, because he knows that you give Tawny just this much, and he'll hold that unconstitutional. Um, so, so this confrontation, because the court that he confronts is a court filled with Jacksonians, and, and people appointed by Franklin Pierce, may he um, rot in hell. And, um, and, and, and I, 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 this is a C-SPAN event, so I paused a little bit, but I, I think I can get away with that one. Um, and, and James Buchanan, that's the court that Lincoln confronts because justices are ghosts of presidents past, and Lincoln's running against all these presidents, against the tide, okay? And that's and some of you may remember this from your, your history books. I won't say you remember it from your childhoods. I won't insult you this way. But the New Deal, remember, it's you know, the New Deal against the old court. And, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt confronts all of these Republican justices. Um, and in his first term, he has not a single appointment. So nine who were appointed by earlier regimes who are threatening to invalidate you know, every part of his, his program, the National you know, Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Administration Act and Obamacare. I mean, um, um, and um, uh, so, his, so you know, his social security um, uh, structure. Um, so that's this, it, these face-offs are built into the structure of a presidency that's four years and title, and these justices who have um, uh, life tenure. Um, now, um, the, um, Reagan didn't really have this confrontation, and here's why. Because um, uh, Earl Warren, who was basically a supporter of Lyndon Johnson, mistimed his exit, and um, he ended up um, uh, uh, doing things in a way so that Richard Nixon, even before getting elected, had two open seats to fill. And then he, there were two other seats. So by the time Reagan um, became president, previous Republican justices had already begun to stock the judiciary um, in ways that were sympathetic to, to, to Reagan. Um, Republicans have controlled, I'll say this again later, the Supreme Court. Republican appointees have controlled the Supreme Court since 1970. Um, and, um, and that's now no longer the case because it's four to four. That in our life, the reason, 20, the reason this, day, this night is so different from all others is we're facing an election in which the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the judiciary are all in play. In January, they could all be controlled by the Republicans, or they could all be controlled by the Democrats, or something in between. And that hasn't happened in the longest time because the Senate has gone back and forth between the two parties, and the House of Representatives, and the presidency. The court has not swung since 1970. So that's, that's part of you know, why this is particularly fraught. But yes, of course, when Obama 
confronts these Republican uh, appointee, uh, court, uh, the Roberts Court, whose majority is uh, appointed by the uh, folks of the party against which he ran. That's the drama of the Obamacare case, you see. And it's not so different than the old court and the New Deal, or Roger Taney trying to invalidate everything that Lincoln is up to, his habeas corpus uh, policies, his draft policies, his um, slavery um, emancipation policies. It's very similar to the confrontation between John Marshall and uh, Thomas Jefferson. See. So there's a pattern to all this. Now, I promised you, since this is the New York Historical Society, that we're not just going to do history, we're going to do New York. Um, so in each of these, let me just remind you of the New York angle. Well, in that first one, George Washington, he's picking a New Yorker, John Jay, educated just right down the road here at Columbia, to be his, his chief justice. So an obvious New York angle um, in that one. What makes... In two words, Thomas Jefferson president in, in, in 1800, you could say the Sedition Act, or you could say New York, Aaron Burr. That's actually the swing state. Remember, Adams and Jefferson are running against each other in 1796, and Jefferson comes in second in that one. And then they do the rematch in 1800, and Jefferson prevails, and that's because he gets Burr to help him win New York. New York is the swing state in that election, so it's looming very, very large. It's, that was Burr against Hamilton here on this island. Whoever won the island would win the state. Whoever won the state would win the presidency, setting up this confrontation. Now, I admit that the third um, face-off doesn't have as much of a compelling New York angle, Lincoln and Taney, and neither of them is quite a New Yorker. But, but Lincoln does rise to prominence and manages to win at the convention, not on the first ballot, of course, um, because he impresses people in this city. The great Cooper Union address is actually the key to, to um, um, Lincoln's um, success. Now, the fourth one is, the mo is one of the most New York stories of all. It's Charles Evans Hughes against it's the Hughes court against Chief Justice against Franklin Roosevelt, both New Yorkers, both former governors of New York, both studied at Columbia. It's, you know, they're friendly, actually, although one's a Democrat, one's a Republican, when they, you know, refer to each other, governor, governor, you know, um, and, and they, they, they have some, and, and Roberts is not the most extreme Republican on that court, but he, there are some folks to his right, um, nicknamed the Four Horsemen of the apocalypse who make life very difficult for Franklin Roosevelt. And it's a very New York um, story. Now, of course, the current court, it's headed by a New Yorker, born in New York State, Buffalo, learned his law here in this city, New York City, and, uh, from Henry Friendly. And the other members of the court, well, we've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who finished her law degree at, at Columbia. and. Um, who's a Brooklyn person, and Sonia Sotomayor is a Bronx person, um, and Elena Kagan is Manhattan all the way, um, uh, um, uh, and uh, Antonin Scalia was Queens? So no Staten Island, I guess. Um, uh, um, um, I mentioned Sam Alito, but remember also Merrick Garland, who learned his law in this city, and he's the guy on the hot seat right now, so it's very much a New York story, and What's going to decide? What's going to decide the election is which new, who, who fills that slot on the Supreme Court? What's going to decide it is which Manhattanite becomes president of the United States, whether it's Donald J. Trump or basically Hillary Clinton. Um, so it's very much a New York story, and the Supreme Court is very much on the ballot. And 
And when you have judges, for example, who decide, who oust a president of the United States, in effect, Richard Nixon, or pick a president of the United States, George W. Bush, or basically tell us who can vote and who can't with ID laws and all the rest. The court is influencing in important ways in close elections who's going to win and who's not. And uh, so, so these things interact. Uh, the the, the in, very interesting interaction between uh, the presidency and the court. So that was my first big thing. My, my others are, are shorter. Um, and um, so um, now here's another, um, so uh, uh, this is a long-term trend that we're witnessing, the rise of judicial power. So I'm going to say a little bit more about this. John Jay quits the court because it's just a hassle. And um, he's the first chief justice. And he's actually offered the position um, uh, a few years later. Let me actually tell you what he says. Um, he, he turns it down. And the reason John Marshall becomes chief justice is that the clock is winding down. Adams has to pick someone because his term is about to end. And John Marshall is the only guy in town. And the mails are slow. And so he says, it's got to be you because I know you'll accept. You know, because uh, um, Jay sat on the offer for a while, and by the time he basically said no, there weren't very many days left um, in um, uh, the, um, uh, the Adams administration. What precipitated Marbury versus Madison? The so-called midnight judges, when John Adams, after losing, tries to pack the judiciary with even more Federalist judges to make life difficult for Thomas Jefferson or to protect his side. Because, again, political appointment, and then they have life tenure thereafter. That was the backdrop of Marbury versus Madison, this race against the clock created by life tenure for the justices versus you know, a very different tenure for, for presidents. Here's, so when, when Jay is um, offered the, the presidency, uh, the, um, the chief justiceship again, he, he declines it because the judiciary lacks, quote, the energy, weight, and dignity, which are essential to its affording due support to the national government. Basically, I don't know how to make this thing work. It's just, it's, 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 it's broken. Well, John Marshall begins to see the, the possibilities um, of it, but you've heard of Marbury versus Madison. Name me, which among other things stands for the proposition that courts can invalidate acts of Congress that they deem unconstitutional. Okay. First, what was the great issue of liberty involved in Marbury versus Madison? Correct. There was no great issue of liberty. It's original versus appellate jurisdiction, and who cares? Um, you can see it a different way, just on how unimportant the court is initially. You know how many justices there were on the original Supreme Court? Six. An even number. How odd. How can a court ever operate with an even number? Because right now you see we have eight. Well, they're not imagining that the Supreme Court is going to be the be-all and end-all for things. By the way, if you've been to the Supreme Court building, when was that built? It's a beautiful building. 1930s. Well, where did they meet before that? In the basement of the Senate. In L'Enfant's great plan for Washington, D.C., they, they didn't even, like, this, the, the judiciary was even an afterthought. They created from the beginning an executive mansion and a, and a house of, uh, uh, um, and, a, and a Congress building, but, but, but nothing for the judiciary. It is third out of three. It's, it's least and last. After Marbury, 1803, When's the next time the Supreme Court invalidates an act of Congress? And the answer is not until 1857. Dred Scott, 
And they made it all up in that case, holding unconstitutional the free, um, the, in effect, the, the, the Missouri Compromise in the, uh, um, uh, which prohibited slavery north of a certain line, which was an astonisher in legal history because the very first Congress prohibits slavery in the Northwest Territory. There's no problem. Congress has power to prohibit slavery in the territories. The framers said Congress would do it. The Northwest Ordinance was passed even before the Constitution was ratified, and everyone knew that when the Constitution went into effect, they'd bless all of that. In 1820, when they strike down, when, excuse me, when the Missouri Compromise is passing, no slavery north of a certain line, Every single cabin officer signs off on it. No one says it's unconstitutional. By every single cabin officer, that includes John C. Calhoun um, from South Carolina. And Yale, by the way, is apparently, this is just a news flash, um, gonna keep Calhoun as the name of one of our residential colleges. Um, I, was, I was rooting for Harriet Tubman College. No, just, um, um, so, um, uh, uh, so, Judicial review is not that important a phenomenon early on. Constitutional issues are really important. Presidents are vetoing bills all the time on constitutional grounds. Half of the presidential vetoes are constitutionally based. Presidents are, so about 50 vetoes, about half of them are constitutional vetoes, and they're vetoing bills that courts have upheld or would uphold, like the constitutionality of the bank which the court says is perfectly okay in McCulloch versus Maryland, but Andy Jackson says, no, not good enough for me, I'm vetoing it. So judicial review is not actually, almost none of the important issues, constitutional issues in the early republic ever get to court or are resolved by court. Can presidents negotiate secret treaties? Can they send secret envoys? How should the um, rounding errors in the apportionment to the House of Representatives um, be uh, 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 dealt with? Can presidents fire cabin officers at will? Um, is the assumption of state debts by the federal government constitutional? Lots and lots of early issues constitutionally arise. The Supreme Court doesn't play a role really in their resolution. They're resolved in the other branches. And today, wow, the Supreme Court is the 800-pound gorilla. It, it not only ousts presidents and picks them, Nixon and, and George W. Bush, but two, twice in an average year, it's invalidating an act of Congress. And not original versus appellate jurisdiction, because who cares really about that? They're, invalid, they're invalidating or threatening to invalidate big laws like Obamacare, um, laws about affirmative action and, and uh, religion in, 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 in public life, uh, and immigration, and um, so huge constitutional questions that are being decided by um, campaign finance, really big ones, twice a year. So what's up with that? How is it that we have this rise of judicial power over time, the, the least dangerous branch of the founders becoming the, today's 800-pound gorilla? Well, um, here are two fa factors that I would identify. There are many. Um, uh, we could talk about how the courts, for, for, just for, for example, there are many more judges today. Um, uh, they say friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. See, just judges accumulate. You need more of them. Um, as you can't keep adding legislators. As dysfunctional as Congress might be with 500, it'd be probably worse with 5,000. Okay? Um, so Congress can't. So at the time of the founding, 
there are seven members of the House of Representatives. There are 100, after the first census, about 105 members of the House of Representatives, and there are six justices. So about seven justices, seven representatives for every judge. Today, there are about 1,000 federal judges, you know, 400 um, Congress people. There are two federal judges for every congressperson. That's a 15-fold change in the ratio. All my students, and some of them are here today, they, almost all of them, they want to be judicial law clerks, to work in the judiciary rather than congressional clerks or something. So the judiciary has a lot more influence just because there are a lot more of them. The Supreme Court gets to decide which cases it's going to pick, which it wasn't able to do in John Marshall's day, which gives it a certain um, power, um, uh, an agenda-setting um, power. But so there, there, there are many factors. Um, uh, we, the people, have increasingly punted issues to the court for resolution. We've adopted a whole bunch of constitutional amendments that pre, over the years that presuppose vigorous judicial enforcement, the Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment, um, 15th Amendment, um, and others. But here are two, um, uh, one of which is, is particularly a New York story. One, divided government. Um, in a world of divided government, um, no matter what the court does, you know, either the legislature is going to like it or the, the president's going to like it, and, um, and the court can't be overturned unless basically the legislature and the president all are on the same page to invalidate. So in a world of divided government, the court has more running room. Every single president since Lyndon Johnson, except Jimmy Carter, has faced an opposition House of Representatives for at least part of um, their time in office, has faced divided government, which gives the judiciary more ability to do what it, it, it wants. Um, 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 John um, um, uh, uh, Marshall um, had less writing room because the Jeffersonians controlled not just the presidency, but the House and Senate. And he starts misbehaving, and he's going to get smacked down. Um, um, and indeed, just to go back one last moment to that first point about the face-off, here's the, another way of thinking about the drama um, from a New York um, angle. If we pick, we the people, the, Republican, the Democrat um, uh, New Yorker Hillary Rodham Clinton, how will New Yorker John Roberts play that? Because now he's going to be basically on the minority faction of the court, because Merrick Garland will be confirmed. And we haven't had very many examples of chief justices in the minority before. But one that we did was John Marshall. And he managed to make it work, even though, remember, he's the last of the Mohicans, the last of the Federalists. Um, and, um, and, they, and they have a, a good base, because they're, they're, they're unanimous when, um, when Jefferson, they've got all the seat slots. But Jefferson wins and wins again, and Madison wins and wins again, and Monroe wins and wins again. And John Marshall's on the court for 34 years. And these are basically Jeffersonian appointees. And he's got to work with them and make it work. And he manages to do that. But sometimes he's kind of leading from behind, because he has to create a, a coalition. He dissents, John Marshall does, in only one important constitutional case in 34 years on the bench. Wow, yeah, that's yeah, an interesting fact, yeah. Um, uh, Ogden versus Saunders in uh, 1827. So is Roberts going to be able to do that if he finds himself in the minority? Because William Rehnquist wasn't in the minority in general, and neither was um, 
uh, Warren Burger, and neither was Earl Warren, yes, a Republican appointee and a largely Democrat corporate, a liberal Republican appointee. Um, and uh, so it will be a distinctive challenge. Uh, Tawney wasn't, was supported by all these Jackson Democrats and, and Pierce Democrats and Buchanan Democrats on the court. Contrary-wise, if Donald J. Trump becomes, if we the people pick him, you have to understand that that is a real possibility, my friends. And if he does, well, how are these New Yorkers like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan gonna, gonna react to, to that? So that's a New York story too. Okay, so one thing that makes the judiciary more powerful today is divided government because it enables the judiciary to be, go, be right wing or left wing and at least you know, one of the two parties and one of the two branches in an era of divided government is gonna be happy with that. Um, so if Hillary Clinton manages to win and, 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 and win the Senate and actually win the House, which could be in play because Donald Trump could lose the House of Representatives for his party, well, that's going to be a very different world for the, the likes of the Republicans on the court. That could happen. And contrary-wise, it could be the case. Both are actually possibilities that Trump wins and carries the Senate and, of course, carries the House. And, of course, he'll have the judiciary then, too, uh, that he'll be able to, to um, uh, replenish with the person of his choice. It won't be Merrick Garland. And, and um, now the, the uh, um, unified government with a vengeance, the Republicans controlling all the branches, that could happen, too. In, um, in this election. That's what makes this election so interesting. So one is rise of divided government has led to much more judicial power. Um, well, maybe one other factor, and then I'll give you the New York angle. In the era of, of wa after Watergate in Vietnam, you lost a lot of confidence in the other branches of government. They lied to you after Watergate in Vietnam. And you think courts are the saviors, you know, the Nixon tapes case, Pentagon Papers. They weren't part of the problem, they were part of the solution. Um, now, I think they've lost some of that Bush versus Gore. I think um, lost them a lot of credibility. Here's what's unique about today's um, Supreme Court. Um, there have been moments in American history when the left hated the court. That would be 1930s, the old court. And, and, and there have been moments in American history when the right hated the court. Impeach Earl Warren, 1960s. We're living in a moment when the Supreme Court is being simultaneously attacked and, and vituperatively by both left and right. That's a new, because people are just pissed off with everything. Uh, 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 teed off for my, my friends on C-SPAN. Um, uh, uh, so that's a somewhat, there's just a lot of anger in general, um, and that's a, that's a new phenomenon. Okay, so Watergate and Vietnam, I think, though, have made the court less um, uh, still held in higher regard than, say, the, um, the, the Congress. Um, and divided government has given the court more power, and there are a lot more judges that they can order around, um, and all these um, and, and lawyers uh, become lawyers basically getting their first start in the judiciary. Here's one other thing that's interesting, and this is going to lead into uh, my next point, um, uh, which is... Um, the rise of claims of judicial expertise, the judicialization of the judiciary. We're smart people. We actually have special expertise because we went to, to law school. And this constitutional stuff is really complicated. So just to remind you, and John Jay was very well educated, but not all the other justices you see have gone to, over the course of American history, have gone to fancy schools and, and had fancy degrees. Um, oh, um, um, most of them weren't even judges before they were justices. 
John Marshall wasn't a judge before he was a justice, and his replacement, Roger Taney, wasn't a judge before he was a justice, and his replacements, Waite and Fuller, weren't judges before they were justices, and that takes us into the 20th century, and Earl Warren wasn't a judge before he was a justice, and before him, Charles Evans Hughes, before he was an associate justice, wasn't a, he was, and then later became chief, wasn't uh, a judge, and neither was William Rehnquist before he was an associate justice, and yes, it actually is true that William Howard Taft was a judge before he was Chief Justice, but he had some other really important jobs also. Um, you're thinking President of the United States, I'm thinking professor at Yale Law School. Um, so, um, whereas today, except for Elena Kagan, the, the court that gave you Brown versus Board of Education, none of them, except one, was a federal judge. And the one you'll, none of you will even remember. You know, not Earl Warren, um, not William Douglas, not Felix Frankfurter, not Hugo Black, um, not Tom Clark, Sherman Minton. Anyone remember Sherman Minton, who was also a senator? So that was a court that had a lot of political experience. Today, except for Lena Kagan, all the justices were sitting federal appellate judges at the time of their appointment. The judicialization of the judiciary, you rise within the judiciary itself, and here's how it begins by going to a fancy law school, often, you know, um, or college in New York or an adjoining state, doing a clerkship, becoming a baby judge and working your way up to the system. And I told you, that's John Roberts, who learned his law, learned how to be a judge by studying um, at the feet of the great Henry Friendly. Merrick Garland studied at the feet of the same great New York City judge. This is, um, so it's the rise of New York in some ways, of the great universities. Um, he here's just, um, uh, one way to put it, and then I'm gonna, um, we're gonna move to questions and answers. Um, uh, just if you think about the rise of claims of expertise, and there's suspicion about expertise, you know, because all these experts on Wall Street um, uh, um, did things to their own advantage, and and and. Um, experts in the accounting industry and, 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 and legal academics are, uh, are just into their own um, uh, 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 power trip uh, critics claim. But, but New York plays a huge role here um, because within commuting distance of this lecture hall, you know, are three of the six greatest law schools on the continent, you know. Um, just a, a, a cab or a, um, a, a commute uh, 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 right away, um, um, uh, Yale and NYU and Columbia. Um, so um, these claims of expertise actually mean, for example, that the court today is no longer geographically balanced. It used to be when justices rode circuit, there was a geographic balance. Now you focus more on a demographic balance. How many women, how many, um, uh, non how many Jews, how many Catholics, how many blacks, how many um, uh, Asians, and, and the like. It's, it's, um, uh, um, it's, uh, and that creates the possibility of a, a very New York dominant court, for example, which you couldn't have had in an era of circuit writing. OK. Um, uh, I think I've said enough just to um, uh, get the conversation going. Uh, and um, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about, we talked about how you get onto the court. We haven't talked about Merrick Garland a lot. I'm happy to do that. We can also talk about off-ramps from the court, how people leave the court and whether they're leaving the court in um, politicized ways or not. So there's lots of stuff to talk about, and I think it's now time to move to Q&A. 
Um, so please come up to the microphones. Um, I ask you to please actually um, um, ask one question and indeed ask a question. <laughs> Thank you. Professor, could you please comment on your opinion as to why Chief Justice Roberts seemingly abandoned his Republican brethren on Obamacare? That's the perfect question. The question is about John Roberts and Obamacare, and that is his John Marshall moment in which he rises above partisan politics. He might be right, he might be wrong. I think he's right. But even if you don't, here's what you can't say. Even if you think he's wrong, he was not a partisan about it. He doesn't like this law, truth be told. His party doesn't like this law, and yet he sided with Democrat appointees. Good for him, because Washington, D.C., almost no one ever crosses party lines, and he did. Good for him. Um, and he did it not once, but twice, because there was the Sebelius case in which he upheld Obamacare against a constitutional challenge, and then the King versus Burwell decision is one in which um, he read the statute purposefully, um, um, sensibly, generously, and didn't sort of try to undermine it with um, clever technical lawyering that really was not um, um, faithful to the larger purposes of the law. And again, you might disagree with him. I think he was right. But even if you disagree with him, note that he was not a partisan. Now, by the way, since um, I'm just going to use that as a chance to say one of the things. Uh, um, we talked about getting on the court. How do people get off the court? Well, I said it's a political appointment process, but there's life tenure after that. True enough, but for much of American history, you had Pauls on the court, once and future, once and future politicians who didn't give up a, a political life when they donned the robes. Why did John Jay leave the court? To become governor of New York. Um, um, and um, uh, uh, his colleague Cushing would have left the court had he been elected governor of Massachusetts, but he lost. Um, 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 I can give you some New York angles on, on all of this. Um, Charles Evans Hughes is a former governor of New York. He's an associate justice. He leaves the court. It's a cushy gig. Why does he leave it? to run for president of the United States. And, and, he, and he only loses California by 40,000 votes. And if he'd won California, he'd have been president of the United States. And then he becomes secretary of state, because there's this connection you see between secretaries of state and, and presidents. In, in American history, many of your early presidents, half of the pre secretaries of state who served four-year terms become presidents. And others came very close, like Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. So um, there's a New York angle with, with um, um, uh, Hughes, who then becomes chief justice later on. William O. Douglas, who uh, learned his law over there at Columbia, um, uh, wants to desperately be vice president of the United States. And he comes this close to being FDR's running mate in 44. He's FDR's poker buddy. And, and, and he had a more political personality, frankly, than a judicial one. It would have been more suited to his temperament. Um, but um, critics would say he was a Trump-like figure in, in, in various ways, um, and maybe perhaps not suited for that. He thought even after that about running for the presidency in his own right. That's another New York um, um, angle. Um, in an earlier world, it would not be, but in our world it's preposterous, what I'm about to say, but in an earlier world, 
You know, because justices didn't give up politics when they were on political ambitions when on the court. Oh, Salmon P. Chase desperately wants to be president of the United States. He's Lincoln's appointee, and he's angling for it, even as he's presiding over Andrew Johnson's impeachment trial. He's actually angling to basically replace Johnson as the Democratic nominee for the presidency in 1868. So, and almost all the people that Lincoln put on the court actually are angling for the presidency. So this is, and that's not as true today. If I actually, from an you know, analytic point of view, just listening, who's actually the Republicans' sanest choice? You know, because um, Paul Ryan, you know, is a good-looking young guy, heartland of America, but he says no. So, who's a good-looking, sensible, centrist, really smart Republican, heartland of America, forder, former um, um, uh, 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 high school quarterback, and you know, just you know, right out of central casting? His name is John Roberts. You know, and and uh, and 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 he's a he's a smarter and younger and better looking version of John Kasich. You see, um, um, you know, j j just saying. Um, uh, uh, and um, but of course, that what I just said is preposterous because actually he's not a Paul. And good for him that he's not. You know, I don't always agree with him, but Chief Justice Roberts, if you see this on C-SPAN, you know, you have a big fan in yours truly. <laughs> and, and you learned your law from the great Henry Friendly, who, for, uh, who taught Merrick Garland and, 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 and many others. And, and Henry Friendly believed that law is different than politics. And so do you, and so do I, and we're lucky that you actually have that view. Yes. Have any justices been impeached? And how would we do it if you could? Yes. <laughs> I have a couple in mind. We do have. Um, well, remember in the 1960s, I told you the, the court was reviled by the right, the John Birch Society and others, major bumper stickers on highways, especially in the Southland. I Impeach remember. Earl Warren. <laughs> Um, you shouldn't admit this. You, 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 I was you're, in the you're, South. Okay, you, you were, you were an infant, uh, but you. Uh, so impeach Earl Warren. Um, so yes, remember impeachment isn't limited to um, uh, presidents or vice presidents or cabinet officers. Um, John Marshall is afraid that if he actually orders Thomas Jefferson to um, appoint this guy named William Marbury to this position. That's what Marbury's all about, sort of. Um, Marbury comes to court saying, I want you, the judges, to order James Madison, who's uh, Jefferson's wingman, his secretary of state, I want you, John Marshall, to order Madison to give this guy a piece of paper saying he's a judge. Because remember, at the end of the administration, Adams tried to pack the judiciary with, um, with all these um, Federalist types. Marshall is afraid that if he does that, he's going to be impeached and maybe convicted. And that's actually um, um, only uh, the, uh, the, the second worst option, uh, uh, scenario. The, the best scenario is he'll just be ignored and made a fool of. Second best is he's going to be impeached, and I'll tell you why he thinks that. The other, at least possible scenario, remember, we have an advantage. We know how history turned out. He doesn't. Thomas Jefferson was... There in France, he says lots of things about the French Revolution and the, the, you know, the tree of liberty must be watered by the blood of, of tyrants. It's this natural manure. So maybe the guillotine. He doesn't know that this guy is not going to be an Hugo Chavez type or you know, Fidel Castro type. Jefferson says a lot of you know, bat crazy stuff. C-SPAN is, is here. So, so, um, uh, so um, um, 
And why is he thinking that he might be? And so he doesn't. He says, Jefferson did all these horrible things. Oh, but too bad we don't have jurisdiction. Um, so, so, so here is. The process is the same. Uh, and I'll tell you who was impeached. A, a justice who sat on Marbury versus Madison Court. A man named Chase. Not, not Salmon P. Chase, but Samuel Chase. And he is actually being, and it's the same process as any other impeachment, basically, um, a majority vote of the House of Representatives and a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Presidential impeachments are different in that the Chief Justice presides, but for other, because otherwise, who would preside? The Vice President, and that's wrong because he would win the presidency upon conviction, so he's sort of, he, he has a conflict of interest. But for every other um, impeachment, it's um, just, um, the Chief Justice doesn't preside, Majority of the House, two-thirds of the Senate. I myself have been involved in the impeachment um, as an advisor of a lower federal court judge impeachment proceedings named Porteus, Thomas Porteus, who was basically a crook um, uh, and uh, uh, convicted and uh, ousted. But here's what Chase did. Chase was a justice who was a federalist, and he was way partisan. And he threw the book at Jeffersonians who um, spoke out against John Adams. He threw the book at them in prosecutions under the, the, the Sedition Act. Um, and he was just a little too vigorous in enforcing the Sedition Act. He wouldn't let juries really hear the, the, the First Amendment um, and, and other constitutional defenses of the defendant. He was a little too vigorous in all that. He gave political speeches. So he's impeached. And... Um, there was an earlier federal judge who was actually impeached and removed. Critics said he um, uh, was abusive of power. Defenders said um, uh, maybe he's just drunk. Um, he was an old guy. <laughs> but we would say today maybe he was suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. Now, is that a high crime and misdemeanor? No. Would you, would you want your case to be decided by a judge with dementia? So, so this guy was already ousted. His name was Pickering, lower federal court judge. Chase is impeached. He's almost convicted. A majority votes to convict, but not by two-thirds. And here's, and the, I have to just tell you the story, because, and I know I'm, I'm about to get the hook, but, but, but Dale told me you guys like stories, so here's the greatest story. At the same time that um, Chase is being impeached for his partisan misconduct, Burr has killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Now, Burr is the vice president of the United States. He presides over the Senate and therefore the impeachment trial of Chase, leading um, wags in the newspapers say in most countries, the murderer is arraigned before the judge. <laughs> but in our country, we have the judge being arraigned before the murderer. Thank you very much. Akil, thank you so much. I uh, just want the audience to know, absolutely, if you're not on our list, get on our list, because he's coming back a lot more next year. We've been working on some great programs together. Um, it is so wonderful to have you. We invite you to stay for the book signing. Akil loves signing books. and. <laughs> 
chatting with you. And again, our bookstore is now condensed into a little kiosk, you know, perfect for reaching it easily this time. So everyone, have a great night. Come back again. And um, we love having you as members. Thank you so much. <laughs>